0: Talk Radio for Inquisitive People. Solace Radio, Conifistate, Colorado. Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for all the spiritual life that you give us through your word. And I pray the things I share today would uh, be an inspiration to all of us and and, uh, motivation to us all to uh, live rightly, to live as good examples of disciples of Yeshua. In his name we pray, amen. Uh, Last Sabbath, I talked about... um, John chapter one verses ten through twelve. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. If you'll remember last week, I talked about what I called the scandal of humanity. The scandal of humanity is the fact that that the Creator of this world came into this world through you know through uh, the Messiah, through his Son. The Word was made flesh, dwelt among us. And when the Creator came into His own world, the world didn't even know Him, didn't recognize Him. He came to His own, His own received Him not. That's the scandal of humanity. Now, uh, several weeks ago, I uh, talked about some of the excuses that people typically give for not wanting to believe in Jesus, not wanting to follow Him. And today, I want to talk about the question specifically about Jewish people. Why don't Jews believe in Jesus? Have any of you had people ask you that question? Why don't the Jews believe in Jesus Christ? Have people ever asked you that? Why don't the Jews believe in Jesus? I mean, after all, if you think about it, here, the Jews, they were the ones who had the scriptures. They, I mean, where'd the promise of a Messiah, the promise of a coming Redeemer, where'd that come from? Well, they were the people with the promise, weren't they? And so you would think that it would be more natural for a Jew to believe in the Jewish Messiah, that it would be more natural for a Jew to believe in Jesus than it would for a non Jew. So what are the reasons that Jews do not, with with exceptions, with a few exceptions, believe in Yeshua? To answer that question in a single word, Satan, you know, the adversary, the enemy, the deceiver, the devil, the liar. But before I explain how Satan deceives, what Satan uses as an instrument to keep the Jewish people from believing in the Messiah, first let me explain something. Why Satan does not want Jewish people to believe in Jesus. Because you think about, okay, Jews make up a very small percentage of the whole world population. So why would Satan be so determined to keep that particular group of people from believing in Jesus? There are three New Testament passages that show us the importance of Jews believing in Jesus, receiving Him. One of them is in Matthew 23. Remember this is the, the chapter when Yeshua rebuked the the Pharisees, Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, you do this, you do that, and you know, exposing all the hypocrisy of, of the leadership there of the scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. And then he ends the chapter with these words in Matthew twenty three thirty-seven, where he's mourning over Jerusalem. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not? Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Meaning the temple's going to be destroyed. And now listen to what he says. He says, for I say unto you, you that he's speaking to, Jerusalem, he says, I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth till ye shall say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Now, blessed is he that comes is a Hebrew way to say welcome, baruch haba. That's just an idiom. It means it's welcome. Somebody comes to your house, baruch haba, or if it's plural, baruch baruchim habayim. So he's saying he's not coming back until Jerusalem says to him, welcome. Now, whether he means specifically the Jewish population of Jerusalem, or a significant percentage of the Jewish people, or just the spiritual leaders of the Jews, whatever, you know, whatever the specifics are of this, some significant number of Jewish people have to say to him, welcome, we welcome you as our Messiah, or he's not going to return until then. So, I would say Satan has a pretty good reason to make sure that not very many Jews believe in Jesus, wouldn't you? Because he knows that as long as Jews do not believe in Jesus, he's not coming back. Set up the kingdom. Another passage, this is out of Acts chapter 3, verse 17. This is after the healing of the lame man, Peter and John. And he's talking to the, you know, the Jewish leaders there and, uh, you know, explaining about how this man was healed through the power of Yeshua's name and so forth, and the fact that they had handed him over to be crucified. And then in verse 17, Peter says, And now, brethren, I know that through ignorance you did it, as did also your rulers, but those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Messiah should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Repent ye, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and he shall send Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven, listen to this, whom the heaven must receive or retain until the times of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So Peter's talking here about the fact that he's ascended to heaven, and the heavens are going to retain him, until this time of restitution or restoration, and, and this time of restoration is contingent upon the repentance of the Jewish people, because he's calling the Jewish people specifically, repent ye therefore, and then this will be the, then, you know, the times of restoration, and then he will send the Messiah back. So I would say Satan has a good reason to make sure Jews don't believe in Jesus, wouldn't you? One other passage, Romans eleven eleven, Paul says, talking about the the fact that the Jewish people did not recognize their Messiah. I mean, some of them did, a lot of them did, but the leadership, for the most part, did not. And Paul says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles. So because the Jewish people, for the most part, did not receive him, God says, okay, the Gentiles are going to receive him. And then listen to what he says to Gentiles. He says, for to provoke them to jealousy... So God, it's like the the Jewish people, for the most part, didn't want Jesus. So God says, in effect, okay, we'll let the Gentiles have it. And then when the Jewish people, who didn't want him, see what a blessing the Gentiles get from receiving him, they'll be provoked to jealousy to want what the Gentiles have. That was the commission and calling. So why do Jews not believe in Jesus? Now, listen to what he says after this. After he talks about provoking them to jealousy, he says, now, if the fall of them, meaning the Jewish people stumbling and not seeing their Messiah, not recognize him, if the fall of them be the riches of the world, you know that through their rejection of him, riches came to the non-Jewish world, and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. For I speak to you, Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might save some of them, for if the casting away of them, now pay attention here, he's not saying God is casting away them, because earlier he says as very first verse, you know, that as God cast away his people, God forbid. By the casting away, well, he means their casting away of Jesus. If the Jewish people's casting away of Yeshua be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? So you see what Paul's saying here? He's saying if the Jewish people rejecting their Messiah brought all these wonderful riches to the Gentile world by bringing the Gentiles in, how much more when the Jewish people receive their Messiah, how much more will, how much more riches will there be? It'll be life from the dead. So I would say Satan has a pretty good reason to keep Jewish people from believing in their Messiah. Now, why do Jewish people not believe in in Jesus? Now, some of them don't believe in him for the same reason that most Gentiles don't want to believe in him and follow him, simply because they don't want to repent. But what are the reasons that Jewish people typically state, you know, if if you ask a typical Jewish person, why don't Jews believe in Jesus? You know, what is the instrument that Satan uses to persuade Jews to not even consider the possibility that Jesus of Nazareth might have been the Messiah? What is the instrument Satan uses? The instrument Satan uses to persuade Jews to not even consider Jesus as the Messiah, the instrument Satan uses is the church, the Gentile church. Specifically, two aspects of the Gentile church. One aspect is Christian anti-Semitism, which is persecution of Jews in Jesus' name. The second thing Satan uses is the church's preaching of another Jesus, their presentation of Jesus, a different Jesus from the Jesus of the New Testament, a counterfeit Christ. And these two things I want to talk about today, the Christian anti-Semitism and the church's preaching of another Jesus. Now, it's ironic that here Satan, the instrument he uses to keep Jewish people alienated from their Messiah, the main instrument he uses is the church. And God's plan for the church was to, to reconcile the Jewish people to their Messiah. And here Satan has used that instrument and used it to drive a wedge to drive them even further away from their Messiah. Okay, first of all, let me talk about Christian anti-Semitism. Now, growing up, I, I was not raised Jewish, but growing up, I was not anti-Semitic. I tell people, I was not anti-Semitic, I was igno-Semitic. I didn't know anything about Jews, hardly. Very little, because here in Peoria, there aren't that, there just aren't that many Jewish people. You know, I've told you before, the only Jew that I really knew was my brother-in-law, Ray, and he was just a hippie like the rest of us, and you know, if somebody harassed him, he would call them anti-Semites. And I'm thinking, well, they're not harassing you because you're a Jew. They're harassing you because you're a jerk. But, you know, that's that's all I knew of a Jew was my brother-in-law Ray, you know. And I believe that there are many other Christians who are, like I was, igno-Semitic. They're not really anti-Semitic. I mean, they might even say phrases like, I'm going to Jew him down. Well, you know, and they, But they don't think of it, they don't think of Jews when they say that. Or they, it's just like people say, he gypped me. Do you think about gypsies if you say somebody gypped you? You don't think of gypsies, but where do you think that term came from? So I think there's a lot of Christians that they are not consciously anti-Semitic. They're just igno-Semitic. They don't know anything about Jews and Judaism, even people in the church. I remember some years back, my wife was talking to a lady who was educated. She had gone to Bible college. And uh, Teresa mentioned something to the woman about the fact that, you know, they were talking about Jewish people. And And, uh, you know, the fact that they don't believe in Jesus. And Teresa said, well, one thing that makes it hard for them to believe is is because of all the anti-Semitism that they've suffered for hundreds of years. And this lady, Christian lady, who's been to Bible college says, what's anti-Semitism? I mean, she didn't even know the term. You know, and that's pathetic. Now, Christian anti-Semitism, as I said, anti-Semitism means we're talking about persecution of Jews in the name of Jesus. Persecuting Jews because they won't believe in Jesus. That's anti-Semitism, Christian anti-Semitism. And uh, one writer pointed out that there are basically three stages of anti-Semitism. Stage one, conversion. Stage two, expulsion. Stage three, annihilation. Now let me explain those. Stage one, conversion. By conversion, I mean we all need to be converted, Jew or Gentile. We need to be converted to God. But they're talking about conversion- to leave everything Jewish behind and become a Gentile Christian. So the first stage of anti-Semitism is to tell the Jews, you have no right to live among us as Jews. The next step is expulsion, you have no right to live among us. Go somewhere else. Third stage, you have no right to live, period. Hitler's final solution. Those are the three stages, conversion, expulsion, annihilation. No right to live among us as Jews, no right to live among us, no right to live. Period. Final solution. Why do you think the Holocaust was called the final solution? See, we have to understand about the Holocaust some things. We need to understand that the Holocaust was not something that just kind of suddenly occurred in a single generation. The Holocaust was the was something that came about from a, it was a cumulative thing. It was century after century after century of of this being built upon all of this Christian anti-Semitism century after century, and that was just the culmination of it. Now, let me talk a little bit about Christian anti-Semitism. We can go back to the second century, the early church fathers, so-called. Now, you could say, well, they weren't exactly anti-Semitic, but they did make some negative statements about Jews and Judaism. Um, if you read the Epistle of Barnabas, for example, and that's not the Barnabas of the Bible, it's a, it's a later Barnabas of the second century. In the Epistle of Barnabas, it's talking about the fact that those those silly Jews believe that the dietary laws are meant to be kept in a literal way. Those Jews don't understand that God didn't really expect people to abstain from pork. He just meant don't behave like pigs. So he said don't eat pork, because he meant to not behave like pigs. I'm paraphrasing. But that's basically the message in the Epistle of Barnabas, is just those Jews, they don't understand. It's just all to be spiritualized. And you can read uh, Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trifo the Jew. You get the same thing. You know, this was a conversation that, the Christian Justin Martyr was having with Trifo the Jew. And Trifo the Jew is, you know, he's trying to persuade Trifo that Jesus was the Messiah. And Trifo the Jew says to him, well, if, if he was the Messiah, then why do you Christians, why do you not keep the Sabbath? Why do you eat pork? Why do you not keep the festivals on the, God's calendar? If you can explain to us why you don't do these things, then maybe we'll consider this Jesus as a possibility of the, being the Messiah. And, uh, Justin Martyr's reply was to him was, you understand everything in a carnal way. That's all he had to say to him. Now, these kind of negative statements by the second century church fathers, and there are others you could, you could read as well. These kind of negative statements about Jews and Judaism, I mean, they're not really insinuating any kind of malice toward Jews, maybe. They're certainly not suggesting that we harm the Jews. But it's more of a condescending, you poor Jews, you know, at worst it's ridicule. But let's go from the second century, let's, Go forward a little bit to the time of Emperor Constantine. You know, you all know the story of Constantine, I hope. You know, he was a heathen emperor of Rome, and he supposedly had the vision of the cross conquering this name, and, and uh you know he got victory, so he decided Christianity, we're gonna quit persecuting the Christians, we're going to have Christianity be the official state religion of the Roman Empire. Now, I think that was three hundred twelve or three hundred sixteen, I forget, but then in the year three hundred and twenty five they had the Council of Nicaea. <coughs> Church leaders come together. One thing they wrote, one decision they made at the Council of Nicaea was this. They said, let us have nothing in common with the detestable Jewish crowd. Detestable, you know, detest means hate. Let us have nothing in common with the detestable Jewish crowd. They were talking about calendar issues. You know, Passover date, date for the Sabbath, Saturday or Sunday. That was one of the reasons they decided to, we don't want Christians keeping Sabbath on seventh day. We want Sunday to be the day. That's 325 A.D. Let's... Fast forward a little bit to the time of John Chrysostom, who lived from 349 to 407. John Chrysostom, Chrysostom means the golden mouth, because he was such an eloquent preacher, the greatest preacher of his day. Now, he said many beautiful, wonderful things about the Lord, but you know what he said about the Jews? Here it is from his sermon. This is what he says about Jews. Such animals, when they are unfit for work, become fit for the slaughter. It was this fate then that the Jews suffered. In making themselves useless for work, they became fit for the slaughter. Do you have to join in greeting them and exchange a scant word? Shouldn't you turn away from them because they are the common corruption and disease of the whole world? Do you see that the demons dwell in their souls? The Jews themselves are demons. Consequently, we must hate both them and the synagogue all the more. This was from great Christian leader John Chrysostom. Now, between John Chrysostom and the Holocaust, There are way too many quotes I could give you, way too much anti-Semitism, but let me just give you a few examples. The year 613, persecution of Jews in Spain. All Jews who refused to be baptized had to leave the country. A few years later, the remaining Jews were dispossessed, declared as slaves, and given to pious Christians of position. All Jewish children seven years and over were taken from their parents, given to receive a Christian education. The year 1096, the First Crusade, as the Crusaders were making their way to the Holy Land in Germany, along the cities on the Rhine River alone, 12,000 Jews were killed by the Crusaders. Why? Because they were Jews. Year 1121, the Jews were driven out of Flanders. Uh, the years 1146 and 47, the beginning of the Second Crusade, the French monk Rudolf called for the destruction of the Jews as an introduction to the Second Crusade. Now, fortunately for the Jews, there was a, another Christian uh, monk named Bernard of Clairvaux who, you know, tried to tone it down. He was somewhat of a friend of the Jews. But even this friend of the Jews, Bernard of Clairvaux, said about the Jews, he called them an evil seed with a stupidity, bestial and more than bestial, an intelligent, coarse, dense, and as it were, bovine. I mean, this guy was one of the guys who was friendly to the Jews. And a contemporary of Bernard was Peter the Venerable, another man who's considered the most beautiful, wonderful, peace-loving Christian of his generation, said... Truly I doubt whether a Jew can be really human. I lead out from its den a monstrous animal and show it as a laughingstock in the amphitheater of the world in the sight of all the people. I bring thee forward, thou Jew, thou brute beast in the sight of all men. These were the wonderful church leaders. Then, of course, the Crusaders, they got to Jerusalem and they were fighting the Muslims primarily. But while they were there in Jerusalem, the Jews all fled to the synagogue. So what did the Crusaders do with all the Jews in the synagogue? They set the synagogue on fire, and surrounded the synagogue singing the hymn, Christ, we adore thee, with the crosses on their breast and holding crosses aloft. Now, I'm not making this stuff up. You can read this stuff in history books. You can go to any library, probably, and, and find, or Barnes & Noble, find some books on this stuff. I mean, I've got here, this is from way back in 1983, a calendar of Jewish persecutions. It just kind of gives some of the highlights of, of Jewish persecution by Christians. And you know, you can go through, you can read about, I mean, some of it's too gory, to even talk about it. I've got this book here. I don't know if any of you have seen this book by Michael L. Brown, a Jewish believer, Our Hands Are Stained with Blood. It's about the history of Christian anti-Semitism. I mean, it talks about Christians, you know, taking Jews, not just expelling them, burning them at the stake, mutilating them, beheading them, butchering them, rapes, not just of single, of entire communities, entire villages of Jews being burned alive, forced conversions, 1478, Spanish Inquisition. To torture, you know, the, the Spaniards said, you know, if you Jews want to stay here, you've got to convert, become Christian, become Roman Catholic. And some of them did, but then they would secretly do their Jewish stuff because they were just doing an external conversion. And so to if they suspected the Jew of still secretly keeping Passover, still secretly abstaining from pork, still secretly eating unleavened bread during Passover, they would torture them to get them to confess. And then if, if a Jew who had converted... If he got caught doing some of that Jewish stuff, which was really biblical stuff, if he said, I want, uh, you know, okay, I'll stop doing it, I'll, I'll come back to the church, they would have to go through this. This is out of Michael Brown's book. If they wanted to come back into the church, they had to be paraded through the streets, men and women alike, bareheaded, barefooted, and naked to the waist. The procession headed by a group of monks, they held unlit candles in their hands, the Jews did, indicating they were yet in spiritual darkness. They were marched through the city till they arrived at the cathedral. A chaplain would make the sign of the cross on the foreheads of these Jews, many of whom had been prominent citizens and respected leaders of their city. Then he would recite these words, receive the sign of the cross which you denied and which being deluded you lost. And then uh, there would be a sermon and then they were to be whipped in procession on each of the following six Fridays, naked to the waist, bareheaded, barefooted, and they were to fast on each of those six Fridays and they were disqualified for the rest of their lives from holding office, benefits, or honorable employment. You know, typical typical treatment of the Jews in Spain. So the culmination of all this century after century of these sorts of things, the culmination of the church's anti-Semitism was the Holocaust. The Nazis and their concentration camps and the six million Jews. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, yeah, but but, but Daniel, the Nazis weren't real Christians. Well, I know that and you know that, but what is a Jew supposed to think? I mean, think about this. What is a Jew supposed to think? Prior to the Holocaust, you had century after century after century of bloody, butchering persecution done in the name of Jesus. And the Nazis were church-going people. Most of them, they were professing Christians, Lutherans or Catholics or whatever. They were a church-going culture. And the motto of the German Christians, and this is out of Erdmann's Handbook to the History of Christianity, the motto of the German Christians was, quote, the swastika on our breasts, the cross in our hearts. Also from the same uh, Christian book, it says a German pastor named Luthuser said, said these words. He said, Christ has come to us through Adolf Hitler. We know today the Savior has come. So what's a Jew supposed to think? I mean, we can say, well, those guys weren't real Christians. But what is a Jew supposed to think? At the Nuremberg war crimes trials, when the you know the Nazis were put on trial for the war crimes, you know what they did to defend themselves? They quoted from Martin Luther, the great reformer. The father of the protestant reformation they said hey we're just doing what luther said to do martin luther said this and this is not some internet rumor this is straight out of martin luther's writings you can go to the library and get them martin luther said of the jews he said this is how you deal with the jews he said first their synagogues should be set on fire secondly their homes should likewise be broken down and destroyed thirdly they should be deprived of their prayer books and talmuds fourthly their rabbis must be forbidden under threat of death to teach any more." Fifthly, passport and traveling privileges should be absolutely forbidden to the Jews. Sixthly, they ought to be stopped from usury. Seventhly, let the young and strong Jews and Jewesses be given the flail, the axe, the hoe, the spade, the distaff, the spindle, and let them earn their bread by the sweat of their noses. We ought to drive the rascally lazy bones out of their system. Therefore, away with them. If this advice of mine does not suit you, then find a better one so that you and we may all be free of this insufferable, devilish burden, the Jews. The words of Martin Luther. Here's another quote from Luther's same uh, article. He called Jews, these dreary dregs, this stinking scum, this dried up froth, this moldy leaven and boggy morass of Jewry. Jews are nothing but rotten, stinking, rejected dregs of their father's lineage. Therefore, whenever you see a genuine Jew, you may with a good conscience Cross yourself and bluntly say, there goes a devil incarnate. Words of Martin Luther. One more, he says, You Jews are not worthy of looking at the outside of the Bible, much less of reading it. You should read only the Bible that is found under the sow's tail and eat and drink the letters that drop from there. So you can say to me, well, Dan, the Nazis weren't real Christians. Was Martin Luther a real Christian? The Christian world, Protestants at least, hail him as a holy hero. And the Jews know that Christians hail Martin Luther as a holy hero. So what's a Jew supposed to think? Whether or not Martin Luther was a true Christian, it's not for me to decide. But Jews know what he said. Most Christians don't have a clue about this stuff. But Jews know what Martin Luther said. And Jews know that Kristallnacht, the Night of Broken Glass, 1938, when the Nazis first went on a rampage, broke all the Jewish homes and and the uh, shops, broke all the glass, all the windows, and... And, you know, really got the got the Holocaust launched. They chose to do it on November 9th in honor of Martin Luther's birthday. So what is a Jew supposed to think? You know, we can say the Nazis weren't Christians. Okay, we understand that. But, you know, to put kind of put yourself in the shoes of Jewish people, suppose this. Suppose that for the past 1,800 years, Christians had been a persecuted minority in a largely Muslim civilization. And that for the past 1,800 years, Muslims had been butchering Christians and persecuting and driving them out from one country to another and expelling, torturing, mutilating, beheading, burning alive entire communities of innocent Christians just because they refused to convert to Islam. And then, in modern times, a Muslim comes up to you and says, Hey, but you have to understand, those people weren't real Muslims. A real Muslim would love you and be kind to you. So now that you understand that, don't you want to receive Muhammad as God's true prophet and Allah as God? Because you have to understand those Muslims weren't real Muslims. Well, what would you think? It would be a little difficult for you to believe that they weren't real Muslims. So you can tell Jews those anti-Semites were not real Christians. And we need to let Jewish people know that. We need to let explain to them that, look, the people that did those things, they were nominal Christians. Nominal just means in name only. They were not true born-again disciples of Jesus. We need to explain that, but you know what else we need to do? We need to show Jewish people what a real disciple of Jesus is like. Now let me talk about the second aspect of the church Satan uses as an instrument to keep Jews from believing in Jesus, and that is the church's preaching of another Jesus, a counterfeit Christ, who, who is not, not the Jesus you read about in the Bible. Now what do you mean by another Jesus? What do you mean by a counterfeit Christ? Well, there are some churches who preach a Jesus who did away with those Old Testament commandments. He did away with all that stuff. He changed the Sabbath from seventh day to Sunday. He did away with the dietary laws. He did away with the calendar. He did away with a lot of other things out of the Old Testament. Why is that a mistake? Well, you're all familiar, I think, with Matthew 5:17, you know, the mantra of the messianic movement, as I call it, where Jesus said to not even think that he came to abolish the law. From the very start, early in his ministry, He knew people would misunderstand some of the things he taught, some of the things he did. He knew people would misconstrue what he did and said. He knew some people would erroneously think that he came to abolish the Torah. So from the very start, to nip it in the bud, he says, look, don't even think that I've come to abolish the Torah. I've not come to abolish it. So in effect, he's saying, whatever you hear me say after this, get that idea out of your head. I didn't come to abolish the Old Testament laws. Furthermore, Jewish people who take their faith seriously are familiar with Deuteronomy chapter 13. I'm not going to turn and read there right now, but paraphrase the chapter. Basically, Deuteronomy 13 says, if a prophet comes along, and even if he does signs and wonders and miracles, and then tells you to depart from the commandments of God's Torah, God's law, he said, don't follow him, he's a false prophet. So, if Jesus really did come along, and do signs and wonders, which he knew he did signs and wonders. But if Jesus really did teach to forsake the commandments of God's law, then the Jews would be right to reject him as a false prophet. They can't even consider him as a candidate for the Messiah. If he did away with the laws of the Old Testament, they would be right to reject him as a false prophet. See, Jews who take their faith seriously, and they're a minority, they believe in the coming of the Messiah. I've got a book here called Mashiach, Hebrew word for Messiah, written by a Jewish man, who is not a believer in Jesus. As a matter of fact, he's an anti-missionary. He does his utmost to persuade Jews that Jesus was not the Messiah. But this is a very, very good book because it it helps you understand the Jewish concept of the Messiah, what they're looking for. And I'm going to share some things out of this book with you. But, you know, if if you ask a, a Jewish person who takes his faith seriously, I mean, you look at the cover of the book, it's got... It says here... I believe with complete faith in the coming of Mashiach. This is one of the 13 principles of the Jewish faith. One of the 13 things that a Jew is, requ- you know, to be a good Jew, he's required to believe. I believe with complete faith in the coming of Mashiach. Though he tarry, nonetheless, I await him every day that he will come. So they are expecting him to come. Now, if you ask a, a, a Jewish person, how, how do, how are you going to recognize the Messiah? How are you going to know who he is when he comes? Their answer is, whoever comes along and does the things that the Messiah is supposed to do, that man will be the Messiah. That makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if the Bible talks about a coming Messiah, and it says he's going to do this, he's going to do that, he's going to do this, he's not going to do that, well, if you get somebody to match that description, you know that person will be the Messiah. So whoever does the things the Messiah is supposed to do is going to be a candidate for the Messiah in their minds. But if somebody comes along and doesn't do those things then they can't even consider him as a possible candidate for the Messiah. And that is why they don't believe in Jesus because the rabbis say, they say, you know, if you ask about Jesus, if they know a little bit about him, they'll they'll say, well, number one, Jesus didn't uphold and teach the Torah. Number two, Jesus didn't regather the 12 tribes of Israel and restore the kingdom to Israel. Number three, Jesus didn't put an end to suffering and death and bring universal peace and harmony to the earth. So one, two, three strikes, you're out. We can't even consider that guy as a candidate for the Messiah because he didn't uphold and teach the Torah. Well, why do they think he didn't uphold and teach the Torah? Mainly because they haven't read the New Testament and they've looked at Christians instead because Christians are the only New Testament Bible they've read and they see Christians not keeping the Torah. I mean, some of it, most of it they keep, but they see Christians don't keep the Sabbath. Christians eat pork. Christians don't celebrate Passover and these other holidays so Jesus must have started a brand new religion. Well, the fact is Jesus did uphold and teach the Torah. He did teach obedience to the commandments of God's law and not just for Jewish believers only. He told the disciples, you know, the so-called Great Commission, he said, go and make disciples of who? Other Jews? No. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, the Goyim, the Gentiles. And how are you to make disciples of the Goyim, the Gentiles? He says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So you see what he's saying to the apostles? He said, you guys, my Jewish disciples, my Jewish apostles, I'm sending you guys to go and make disciples of the Gentiles, and you teach the Gentiles to obey all things that I commanded you, my Jewish disciples. So did he command his Jewish disciples to keep the Torah? Certainly, Matthew five seventeen. So if he taught the Jewish disciples, you keep the Torah, Think not I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Verily I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the Torah, till all be fulfilled. If he taught the Jewish disciples to keep the Torah, then they were to teach the Gentiles to keep the Torah, even the least of the commandments. See, the the conflicts that Yeshua had with Jewish leaders was not over the commandments that are written in the Torah. The conflict that Yeshua had with the Jewish leaders was over their misinterpretation of those commandments. Because you notice he'll be, when he's you know debating with the Pharisees, he'll say, have you never read? Or it is written? Or you make void the law of God by your tradition? It was just their rabbinical man-made traditions, their misinterpretation of the Torah, that he was in conflict with them. See, the, the anti-Torah Jesus, the Jesus who came and abolished the law, is another Jesus. Let me read you another uh, quote here out of Michael Brown's book. Uh, This is, um, in the Middle Ages, if a Jew wanted to convert to Christianity, he would have to, and I'm not going to have time to read the whole thing, but he would have to read this solemn oath that he took to basically leave everything Jewish behind and not do any of that stuff anymore. The Jew would have to say, I do here and now renounce every right and observance of the Jewish religion, even if it was straight out of the Bible, detesting all its most solemn ceremonies and tenets. I will not associate with the accursed Jews. He had to vow that he wouldn't celebrate Passover, the Sabbath, or other feast days. That he uh, wouldn't shun swine's flesh anymore. Uh, That he wouldn't celebrate unleavened bread, Passover, weeks, trumpets, atonement, tabernacles, all the other Hebrew feasts. I absolutely renounce every custom and institution of the Jewish laws. In one word, I renounce absolutely everything Jewish. Well, then you're renouncing Jesus too, aren't you? Because he was Jewish. I anathematize, that means I consider them cursed, the chief rabbis and evil doctors of the Jews, and I believe and profess the blessed Virgin Mary, who bore him according to the flesh and who remained a virgin to be truly and actually the mother of God, and I venerate and honor her truly as the mother of God incarnate and as the lady and mistress of all creation. This is what a Jew had to say if they wanted to become a Christian. And then he would have to say, if if I wander away from this faith, may all the curses of the law fall upon me, and... And uh, at the end of my life, I'll be handed over to the eternal fire and the company of the devil and his angels and so forth. So that's what a Jew had to, uh, to vow to if he wanted to convert in the Middle Ages. Now, second objection Jewish people have to believing in Jesus. They say he didn't regather the 12 tribes and restore the kingdom to Israel. Now, let me talk about that for just a moment. I don't have time to get into a lot of detail. But when we think about the regathering of the 12 tribes of Israel and restoring the kingdom to Israel, what does the church teach about this. What do Christians believe and teach about this? Well, most Christians, if you ask them, what do you believe about the restoring of, the, the, the regathering of the 12 tribes and the restoring of the kingdom of Israel? If you ask most Christians, you'll just kind of get a puzzled look like, huh, a blank stare. Or some of them might say, well, it's all spiritual now. The New Testament church replaces that Old Testament Israel. There's not going to be any regathering of tribes and restoring of the kingdom to Israel. Israel's done for. It's the church now. Or they might say, Well, the 12 tribes are gone except for the tribe of Judah, the Jews. So it's just the Jews that are going to go back to the land of Israel. But, you know, those other 10 tribes, uh, you know, they're just gone. For most Christians, I think the question of the regathering of the tribes and the restoration of the kingdom to Israel, for most Christians it's irrelevant and unimportant. But you know what? To the apostles, that was the primary question on their minds after the resurrection. It was the final question they asked Yeshua right before his ascension in Acts chapter 1. Let me read it out of here, verse 6. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, the church is replacing Israel, forget about it. No, he said, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own hand, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts, part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. So the very last question before his ascension was, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now notice they didn't say, will you at this time drive the Romans out of Judea and restore the kingdom to Judah? That wasn't their question. Their hopes included the tribe of Judah and the territory of Judea, certainly, because that's part of Israel. But their question concerned not just the Jews, not just the tribe of Judah, but all the tribes of Israel, all the territory of Israel, all the kingdom of Israel, all 12 tribes. See, they understood the importance and the necessity. They knew that one of the jobs of the Messiah, one of the things the Messiah has to do is regather the 12 tribes and restore the kingdom to Israel. They knew that's one of the jobs of the Messiah. They knew Jesus was the Messiah, and they knew he hadn't done that yet. So, they, so is that the next thing on the program that you're going to do? And he didn't say, I'm not going to do it. He just said, it's not for you to know the times. But they did understand the importance and necessity. And you know what? Jews today understand that too. This book right here written by an anti-missionary, he, talk, he writes in here about that. He's got a couple pages here, the ingathering of the exiles of Israel. You know, he quotes from Deuteronomy 30, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 43, Amos chapter 9, Raise up the tabernacle of David which has fallen, which the apostles quote in Acts 15. And, you know, that has to do with the Gentiles and the tribes coming back uh, through the Gentiles coming to faith in the Messiah. Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 39. And then he writes this, he says, listen to what this writer says, the ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel exiled by the Assyrians before the destruction of the first Beit HaMikdash, the temple, and dispersed beyond the river Sambation and the mountains of darkness will also return. So, Jewish people who take their faith seriously, they know the ten tribes have to return. The tribe of Judah has been returning for a hundred years or so, but they know the other tribes somehow, wherever they are, whoever they are, they've got to return. He says, this divine promise of the return and restoration of Israel is unconditional. It will occur even if the people should not want to return. And then he quotes here from uh, Ezekiel. And then uh, later on in the book, let me read uh, one other thing. He, He points out, he says that, Because you see, where are the ten tribes? You know, they got carried away into Assyria. After some time, they intermarried, they assimilated. And where are the descendants of the ten tribes today? Hosea said they would be numerous, like the sand of the sea. Where are they? Well, some of them might even be in this room and not know it. Some of them might be across the street. Some of them might be in France or Italy or Russia or Asia. We, We don't know, but God knows where the descendants of the ten tribes are. And the ten tribes... You know, Peter and Paul quote from Hosea's prophecy, Hosea chapter 1, which I don't have time to get into, telling Gentile Christians that Hosea's prophecy about the tribes being reclaimed is fulfilled through you, through Gentiles coming to faith in Israel's Messiah. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean every Gentile who comes to the Messiah is descended from the tribes, but it means that some of them are, and however many it is, whether it's 99% or less than 1%, As far as God's concerned, it's enough to fulfill the prophecy that that's how the ten tribes are being regathered. So, see, what we need to understand is that, and and to explain to Jewish people if they bring this up about, well, if Jesus was the Messiah, why didn't he regather the twelve tribes? Our response should be that he is the one to do it. And he started doing it when he died on the cross and sent his apostles on the Great Commission to go to all the nations because where are the descendants of the ten tribes? They're among the nations. That's where they are. So the gospel has to go to the nations, and then through that, the, the 12 tribes will be regathered and restored to Israel. And um, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, Art read from, from John's gospel, where uh, this is out of John eleven forty nine, where the high priest is prophesying, <coughs> Caiaphas being the high priest, that same year said to them, when they're discussing, you know, what are we going to do about this problem with this Yeshua guy? And Caiaphas said, You know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself. So he was speaking prophetically without even knowing it. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, and listen to this, and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Who are the children of God that are scattered abroad? They're the descendants of the ten tribes that are out there among the Gentiles, scattered everywhere. And so Jesus' death, yes, it was to atone for our sins and give us eternal life. That's the primary thing. But it's also that through the gospel, the, the descendants of the tribes, the twelve tribes are going to be regathered. And then uh, back in chapter 10, verse 16, the Lord said, um, other sheep I have which are not of this fold. This fold meaning the Jewish fold. It's not just the Jewish fold. I've got other sheep. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. And this idea of one fold and one shepherd, go back sometime, read Ezekiel chapter 37, and it'll make sense, where it says these two, you know, the Judah and the the northern tribes are going to be reunited. So Yeshua started regathering the 12 tribes. He started the restoration of Israel. It's still in process, and he's going to complete the job. And I don't claim to know all the details of exactly how it's going to occur. You know, I'm not some, you know, little chart maker with end-time prophecy. But I do see what's happening now in our generation, and I do see what the Bible says. But you know what? As long as the church denies this, as long as Gentile Christians view the church as some something that's a separate entity, separate from Israel, instead of being a part of Israel the Jews are going to continue to reject Jesus as a possible candidate for the Messiah. So we need to see that, like, you know, the uh, verses that Jim read earlier from Ephesians 2, that you are formerly Gentile, formerly alienated from the commonwealth of Israel through your faith in Israel's Messiah. You are now a part of Israel. But as long as the church doesn't think of themselves as part of Israel, as long as the church thinks, well, Israel, that's the Jews over there, and the church, that's us over here, and they're two separate distinct entities, well, then you don't have the regathering of the tribes, and you don't have Jesus as a possible candidate for the Messiah. Now, let me just, uh, third third objection, and I'll close with this. Doesn't mean I'm going to be done in a minute, but this is the last point I want to make, is the, the, the objection that Jewish people have, they say, well, look, when the Messiah comes, he's going to end suffering and death, and he's going to establish universal peace, you know, beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks and all that stuff, and obviously there's still wars and sickness and, evil going on since Jesus came, so he couldn't have been the Messiah. Well, we need to explain that Yeshua, he's going to finish the job when he comes back. Now, he finished the work of redemption on the cross. He said, it is finished. And then he breathed his last. What was finished? Well, the work of redemption, atonement, forgiveness of sins, he obtained all that. That part of his work was finished. But the rest of his work isn't finished yet because he hasn't come back yet to set up the kingdom. So we need to explain to Jewish friends that the Messiah is coming two different times. The first time he came to do the work of redemption, atonement, forgiveness of sins. Second time, he'll bring universal peace. The first time he brings peace in our hearts. Remember, he said to his disciples, uh, my peace, not as the world gives, give I to you, but my peace, give I to you. But when he comes back, he'll establish universal peace. <clears throat> now, um, so we need to explain that the Messiah is coming two times. Now, it's interesting that Judaism actually teaches that there are going to be two messiahs. As a matter of fact, as recently as, uh, this is the December 25th to 31 Jerusalem Post, little article here that's a weekly column, Shabbat Shalom, I think it's called, or something. Um, he, you know, he, he refers to it here. He's talking about Jacob. He says, uh, thus patriarch Jacob paved the way for both the messiah son of Joseph as well as the messiah son of Judah who will rebuild the temple and so forth. So he, he mentions it right here and and it's talked about in this book as well um now most people when they talk about the jewish messiah they think primarily of you know the messiah son of david who will come as the great king and set up the messianic kingdom and rule over a world in peace and harmony but the prophets also you know they write about a coming messiah who's going to reign as a king but they also write about a messiah who's coming to suffer and die and the rabbis who studied the prophets they would see this they saw well here the Messiah, he's coming, you know, as a glorious king, reigning in power, but here it sounds like he's coming to die and suffer. So they conclude, well, it must be two different guys, two different messiahs. And they labeled one Messiah, son of David, the kingly messiah. The other one they called Messiah, son of Joseph. And uh, in this Mashiach book, he, uh, he has nine pages in here talking about this Mashiach ben Yosef. This is a 110-page book, nine pages significant amount of this book talks about Messiah, son of Joseph, the suffering Messiah. He even quotes from Isaiah 53 for the suffering Messiah. And it's fascinating when you look at the similarities between Yeshua of Nazareth and some of the things the rabbis believe about this Mashiach ben Yosef, Messiah, son of Joseph. And as I said, this guy's not trying to make a case for Jesus. He's against Jesus. And yet the things he says about Messiah, son of Joseph, you think he was talking about Jesus. So when information comes from a witness who's hostile to your case, it's even more compelling. And the rabbis point to Zechariah 12.10. They say it's a prophecy of the suffering Messiah. And I will pour upon the house of David, upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Now we know that's talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. The rabbis say that's talking about Messiah, son of Joseph. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced, shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and be in bitterness for him. Uh, They say the cause of the mourning in this verse in Zechariah is the slaying of Messiah, son of Joseph. And they say that this Messiah will take upon himself all the guilt of Israel and shall then be slain in the war to make atonement in such manner that it shall be accounted as if Israel had pierced him, for on account of their sin, he has died. They also believe Messiah, son of Joseph, will be resurrected shortly after his death. And they also believe that the spiritual condition of the Jewish people at the time of the redemption uh, th- this sequence of events it's not definite but contingent upon the spiritual condition of the Jewish people. In other words, they say if if, um, if Israel is worthy when this Messiah comes, he may not have to suffer and die. But if Israel is not worthy, he'll have to suffer and die. And uh, they also taught that this Messiah, son of Joseph, would regather the twelve tribes, reunite them. And there's there's even one statement in here that suggests that Messiah, son of Joseph he might possibly be the same Messiah as Messiah ben David. They say this, it says, Rabbi Isaac Luria notes that the descendant of Joseph by being the precursor of the ultimate Mashiach is in effect Kise David, the seat or throne of David, that is, of Mashiach. Thus, when praying in the daily Amidah, the standing prayer, speedily speedily establish the throne of your servant David, one should consider that this refers to Mashiach ben Yosef. So it's almost like they... They believe that it's even possible that Messiah, son of David, Messiah, son of Joseph, might be one and the same person. So this Jewish idea of two Messiahs, it just needs a slight adjustment. It just needs to be explained. Look, it's not two different Messiahs. It's one person coming two different times, separated by maybe, you know, so far about 2,000 years. Came the first time, finished the work of atonement. He's going to return as Messiah, son of David, and finish the work. And it's interesting, too, in this book, that the pro- the rabbis see the prophet Elijah making two different appearances. Remember John the Baptist? Came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And second coming, said I will send the spirit of Elijah. Let me just read that quote real quick and I'm almost done here. It says, uh, Elijah will make two appearances. First he will appear with the coming of Mashiach. Then he will be concealed to appear again before the war of Gog and Magog. So they believe Elijah's coming before the Messiah, then he'll disappear, then he'll be revealed again. So, just to close, what do we do about Jewish friends who don't believe in Yeshua? First, don't forget why. Don't forget that you know you have a whole history of Christian anti-Semitism that you're dealing with. Understand how Satan has used it. It'll help you understand a little bit why it's so hard for a Jewish person to consider Jesus. Secondly, you have to understand that all that persecution of the past, you can't undo it. I mean, I can't do anything about things that Christians of past generations did. It's done. I can't undo it, but what I can do is acknowledge it and condemn it and show how a true disciple of Yeshua should live and think and walk with the Lord. And then third, understand that if you believe in Jesus, he is Israel's Messiah. If you believe in Israel's Messiah, you are a part of the commonwealth of Israel, so live like an Israelite a Messianic Israelite. And through that, it'll help reunite the Jewish people to their Messiah, Yeshua.